the winter of 1896, a spate of airship sightings spread out from California, stampeding across the United States, until, in the spring of 1897, they hit a wall in the Midwest, after a brief flirtation on the East Coast. The sightings totaled in their tens of thousands, and many included fantastical descriptions of both the ship and the people riding it. As the ships flew from state to state, the stories often grew bolder in their claims until they were heavily dovetailing with the science fiction of the day. With airships still incapable of sustained flight in 1896, were any of the sightings, though, actually true? Or were the witnesses seeing something else in the sky? Are some of the more outrageous stories actually far closer to the truth than they may at first seem? Or was the whole affair just one big medley of lies, hoax and misidentifications? This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 5, Episode 4. It's great to be back and I hope this finds you all well. Before we start this week's episode, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who supports on Patreon. I'm like right on the cusp of 500 patrons, I think 496 right now, which is just madness. And, um, you know, I, I, I just really want to say thank you, really. Um, I won't go into it too heavily. I think what I'm going to do is release like a patron um, bonus um, and I'll sort of talk a bit more in there about, you know, where how the money has sort of affected the way the show works. But But just now, just to keep it quick, I just want to say like the show is... Over the years, the, the money from the patron has fundamentally changed the way this show works and the way I can make the show. To say that it's as it is today because of the patrons is is no small feat. Like I say I, I do run advertisements. Um, they don't even pay for my um, hosting fees. So it really is in thanks to the patrons that all the things that have happened over the years have, have managed to be got through and, you know, the show is where it is today precisely because of you, so thank you very much. Uh, on that note, um, there's not really a lot else to sort of say other than, you know, thanks for listening as always. So let's just crack on straight into it. This is Phantom Airships of the 19th Century. The 19th century was an explosive era for innovation and technology. Understanding and utilisation of both steam and electricity laid the pathway to a golden age of invention that saw daily life change, often profoundly for public life. Whilst inventors such as Tesla and Edison were enjoying all the trappings of fame in real life, the archetypal, mysterious yet genius inventor character became the focus of boys' novels and newspaper serialisations, entrenching it deeply into the popular imagination as science fiction one year became science fact soon after. Discoveries and inventions were discussed in excited columns throughout newspapers, hyping the unveiling of devices and publishing communications between the more famous scientific engineers. Invention stories were a perfect fit for a flourishing form of relatively new tabloid journalism that focused on news as entertainment. With the public appetite for invention as it was, the stories could most of the time focus on entertainment while still delivering actual news, something that was not always the case in an economy that was becoming increasingly one-sided. In 1895, this tabloid journalism reached a new peak 
that saw the style immortalised as yellow journalism, when a circulation war broke out between Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, at that point the highest selling paper in New York, and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal, a penny paper that had been bought by Hearst with the intention of turning it into a direct competitor to Pulitzer's crown. Hearst had already had plenty of experience in the newspaper game after he'd acquired the San Francisco Call from his father in 1887, and now he had his sights on the East Coast. The New York World had already forged a reputation for padding its multi-page two-cent paper, the longest paper in New York for the price, with stories that were sensational at best and complete fabrication at worst. This wasn't a new or unique technique in the 1890s, but the New York World certainly took the concept to new heights, running stories full of graphic details of crimes and scandal, and oftentimes hyperbolic in the extreme. It was a format that had seen newspaper readership throughout America grow exponentially over the previous decades, as readership leapt over the traditional class and educational boundaries. At times, the stories aimed to entertain, sensationalising everyday criminality or by satirising public events, figures and even the reading public itself. At other times, such as the case with the looming Spanish-American War, they were bombastic political stories, stuffed full of propaganda, pushing a heavily biased pro or anti-sentiment. On plenty of occasions, they were unashamedly all of the above. By the late 19th century, Spanish colonialism was well on the wane after losing many of its colonies in South America during the Spanish-American Wars of Independence in the early years of the century. America had long had designs on Cuba with proposals put forward before the American Civil War to turn it into a slave colony, and though that plan never reached fruition, after the war, American interest in the region remained high, with bilateral trade that made up for 90% of all Cuban exports going to the US. By the 1890s, the Cubans had been struggling for independence from Spain for over three decades, with little success. From the Spanish perspective, Cuba was an important piece of the empire, and they used it as both a jewel in its regional crown and a training ground for its armies in South America. The prolonged conflict between the Cuban revolutionaries and the Spanish colonists were not at all in the American trade interest. Though the US refrained from directly intervening until, in 1898, when they sent the USS Maine to Havana in order to impress the importance of reform upon the Spanish, where it promptly exploded in the harbour, sparking a declaration of war for America and setting the wheels of Cuban independence firmly in motion. In the run-up to the explosion, Hearst was keen to stoke the fires of anti-Spanish sentiment in his papers, as was Pulitzer, and there were many stories printed that were spiced with incendiary anti-Spanish language or simply straight-up propaganda attacks on the country that played heavily into the yellow journalism narrative that the readers were already conditioned to accept. Whilst this circulation war between Hearst and Pulitzer was firmly entrenched within their respective New York papers, the brand of journalism that they were touting had long since filtered out across the country, propelling a style of tabloid journalism based around entertainment that had been evident for almost half a century. For many readers, the distinctions between fact and fiction, or news and satire, were fairly evident. But it was not always the case, and the line between the two types of stories often blurred 
In an age when a willful public were gleefully humbugged by entertainers such as P.T. Barnum and new inventions were being showcased at national fairs that bordered on black magic in the eyes of the layman, the murky grey area between fact and fiction thrived. Such was the case in the winter of 1896, when a spate of airship sightings burst into the scene, spreading from California to the Midwest, enticing, terrifying, entertaining and infuriating the newspaper reading public all in equal measure. On Sunday the 1st of November 1896, Mr. Brown, a hunter living on Bolanas Ridge, northwest of San Francisco, stepped out of his house in the early hours. The ground was covered in a low hanging mist that obscured the horizon. The mist would not have been uncommon given the region's proximity to the coastline, but it was what emerged from the lifting, morning fog that so shocked the hunter at such an early hour. I saw a large dark shape with something moving on it, he told newspapers later that month. I've been kind of dazed ever since, he went on. To have you tell me I don't look crazy is a great relief. Mr Brown had bottled up his story for several weeks, afraid of what people would make of it if he told them outright. But recent events had bolstered his resolve to open up about that morning on the ridge. He told the papers, fairly confident that his story was now one of several dozen, that as the mist rose off the top of the pine trees that lined the landscape, he had seen an airship floating above the ground, perfectly still in the morning sun. Following the sighting, he had initially told a handful of the locals of what he had seen, but it was assumed by them that it had been a mirage, an effect of perspective that made ocean vessels appear to float through the skies above the hills, and quickly his story was discounted as nothing to be so excited about. After fearing he'd be made a fool, or thought crazy, he simply decided to keep the story to himself. But after the night of the 17th, it didn't really seem so crazy anymore. At least, not to him anyway. The evening of the 17th of November was cold and damp. It had been raining heavily all day, and as the weak winter sun sank beneath the horizon at 5pm, it was completely out of sight, shrouded in a thick layer of cloud that sat heavy over the city, obscuring the early evening sky. David Carl, a horse trainer living in Sacramento, California, was on his way home at around 6.30pm when he noticed a light in the sky, bobbing around with an up and down waving motion close to the ground. As the light grew nearer, Carl said he could hear voices talking, shouting that they were too low to the ground and suggesting to send her up higher. As the ship began to steadily rise in a slow incline, the voices could continue to be heard, talking of how they were anxious to reach San Francisco by midnight. Carl assumed that he had seen a balloon, though, as it rose out of sight, he wondered how it did so at such a low trajectory, rather than the steep shooting up of a balloon dumping ballast. As it turned out, David Clark was not the only witness that night, and his observation, that it rose strangely for a balloon, turned out to be an astute one. The next day, the San Francisco Call printed a story on the sightings on page three of the paper and it included a whole handful of witness testimonies who were convinced the light in the sky had not been a balloon, but an airship. Claim they saw a flying airship. Strange tale of Sacramento men not addicted to prevarication. Declared they heard voices of those aboard joined in merry chorus. 
A vast amount of excitement was created among residents in the outskirts of the city tonight by the appearance of what they claimed to have been an airship, which, seemingly under perfect control, passed over the city, going in the direction of San Francisco. The impression here seems to be that someone has solved the mystery of aerial navigation, and is conducting his experiments at height in order to escape impertinent curiosity. Men in charge of East Park, which lies outside the city limits, state that as the airship passed over the park, the voices of men who seem to be disputing as to whether they should cause their conveyance to rise higher could be heard. The lights then rose rapidly into the air and passed on. Local Sacramento paper, the Record Union, was a fair bit more theatrical with its own coverage, printing the simple headline, What Was It? An apparition wandering through the atmosphere, several persons last evening between six and seven o'clock saw a big ball of fire like an electric light pass over the city, going in a southwesterly direction. It moved slowly and was in sight for more than half hour, finally disappearing into the mist and darkness. The San Francisco call made no bones about it though. The object that everyone had seen on the night of the 17th was an airship and they described it in vivid detail, claiming it to be oblong or egg-shaped, with a bright electric light on the underside and large fan-like wheels on either side like that of a steamship that forced it to bob and wave in the air, like that of a boat being forced against the rapid current of a stream. Within days, the news spread rapidly and all manner of witnesses came forward with their tales of what they had seen in the sky, including Mr. Brown the Hunter, with his sightings from weeks before. T.P. DeLong said of how he had heard the occupants of the craft singing as they had passed overhead, a story repeated by several, though he claimed he had not had a good view of the ship itself. Others, like R.L. Lowry, told much more bombastic stories, claiming they had got such an eyeful of the ship that they had actually seen the men aboard for themselves. Such is the description by R.L. Lowry, who also claims to have been able to distinguish four men, who were seemingly engaged in propelling the vessel by its fan-like wheels, much after the fashion of a bicyclist driving his wheel over a boulevard. As the men rode over the heads of Lowry and bystanders nearby, one was said to have shouted up to them, asking them where they were headed, to which they received the reply that the occupants were aiming for San Francisco and they hoped to be there by midnight. The light made its way southwest, carving a diagonal line across the Sacramento sky, bound in the direction of San Francisco for upwards of 30 minutes, and in that time, hundreds claimed to have witnessed its passage. Probably the most prominent was the Sacramento mayor, who, having not seen it for himself, told the papers that he'd returned home only to hear the stories from his daughter and servants of a brilliant white light that had passed over the house at great elevation. The light had not been a meteor, the mayor had been assured, as it was of a different shade of light, and it moved much too slowly. Early rumours were quick to circulate that some secretive inventor had managed to build an airship and was testing it out during the night time in order to conceal the vessel before a patent could be filed. The papers, naturally, suggested that with relations between America and Spain strained, it was perhaps an invention of the government out-testing the practicability of such a vessel for war. Whilst many papers went all in with the airship story, the 
local paper, the Sacramento Bee, decided to play a more sceptical hand with its own reporting, and it ran a story calling the light in the sky a what is it, and fairly openly put forward that the witnesses were all either drunks or liars, and that the general consensus was that to call it an airship was ridiculous. Calling it a general consensus, however, was a bit of a bold statement. It may have used its own pages to ridicule the witnesses, complete with an anonymous letter from a reader describing the wondrous sights the crew would have seen flying around the earth, as witnesses below heard their beer corks pop. But plenty of other papers were convinced that a mystery inventor had managed to beat the puzzle of human flight. As the days passed, rumours continued to swell, and every inconspicuous event was attributed somehow to the airship's presence. Workmen at Sacramento Church that had been undergoing renovations on its steeple had found a hammer missing the day after the sightings, which quickly gave spread to a rumour that the ship had been flying a test run and come under problems grounding it on the outskirts of the city for repair. But not before they had swept over the church tower and stolen the hammer from the scaffolding as they flew, because apparently genius engineers did not have their own tools. Still, it was true that not every newspaper not every rumour bought into the airship narrative. More conservative stories floated the idea that the light seen was either a meteor or a will-o'-the-wisp and only gently chided those that said otherwise. It wasn't long before the speculation could give way to a fresh wave of sightings and on the evening of the 22nd of November, the citizens of Sacramento were treated once more to a visit from the mysterious light in the sky when it passed directly over the centre of the city at about 5.30pm. Just like the previous night the airship had been seen, the sky had been blanketed in a thick cloud all day that left the stars concealed, and yet thousands said they witnessed the bright light weaving through the sky. Jacob Zemensky, a well-known downtown cigar man, observed the ship through a telescope, and he confirmed with the paper that, if it was not an electric arc light of intense power, then I never saw one. Anyone who had previously been sceptical of the airship's truth, he said, were now forced, with these new sightings, to abandon their unbelief. The workers at the Sacramento Streetcar Depot, who had given many of the original witness testimonies after a newspaper had sent a reporter down to their depot, told the papers the following day that they were thrilled to have been vindicated after a week of derision. The following day, the San Francisco Call made the ship its front-page story, taking up almost the entire page, complete with a sketch of the ship, drawn by an attorney who both knew the inventor and had seen the ship up close for himself. Amidst an avalanche of testimony, the caller dug out this exclusive story of a local man, George D. Collins. Collins was an attorney working out of Alameda, and he had some fairly bold claims that the enthusiastic paper were happy to give column inches to. A few weeks ago, said Mr. Collins, I came from Washington, whither I had been on important business. On my arrival in the state, I met a gentleman who introduced himself to me, and when I told him where I had been, he immediately said he was very sorry that he had not met me prior to my departure, as he had some important business to transact at the patent office in Washington, which he would not trust in the mail or by any other means than a trusted servant. I asked him what his business consisted of, but beyond telling me that he was an inventor, I got no further details from him at the time. He told me enough, in an indirect manner, to convince me that he was a man who had a secret that he evidently cherished dearly. 
but he enlightened me no further, and beyond exchanging cards, our acquaintanceship developed nothing more till later. A few days afterward, he called on me at my office in San Francisco, but as he did not talk about business, I concluded that he had merely paid me a social call. I became greatly interested in that invention. I could not help noticing that there was a desire on his part to tell me more than I knew, and I could also see that he restrained himself from doing so. He called on me a second time, chatted about a few immaterial matters, and departed, leaving me in wonder as to when he would confide anything further to me. Altogether, he made about half a dozen of these visits, and I concluded that he really did intend to talk business every time he came, but that his courage failed him as soon as he got in the office. Finally, he got up the courage enough to tell me that he was not only an inventor, but that he really did have an invention. He asked me if he could place confidence in me. I replied, do you mean as a friend or as an attorney? And he said, as both. I told him that I could not recall any occasion in which I had violated a friend or a client's confidence and that I thought I was fully capable of attending to any business he might wish me to transact for him. He said that if this secret were made public prematurely, it would mean the loss to him of an immense fortune. He further assured me that it was an invention that anybody would willingly steal if they had the opportunity. I talked to him for a little while and succeeded in assuring him that if such were the case, I, as an attorney, would be just as anxious to protect his interests as he would be himself. I am telling the details of my first meeting with this inventor because they carry with them a good idea of the nature of the man and also are evidence of his sincerity and belief in the practicability of his invention. He is a resident of Oroville and a man of wealth, about 47 years of age, and a fine-looking fellow. He does not talk for five minutes without convincing his hearer that he is a man of more than ordinary intelligence. The first time he talked to me of his invention, he got as far as the word airship, and then I laughed, and laughed heartily. What kind of whiskey have you been drinking? I asked him. This made him indignant, and had I laughed any longer, he certainly would have got very angry, and I should have most probably have lost a client. I have not been drinking, sir, he said, and when I do, it is not whiskey. The mysterious, wealthy inventor went on to describe how he had been working on the ship for several years in secret, shipping in materials from the east coast to avoid curiosity. His recipient, the inventor, then went one step further by providing the paper with its method of propellant, which was, he said, via compressed air. A small electric motor was on board to power the searchlight that everyone around the city had seen during its flight. Conveniently, Collins had met with the inventor since the sightings, and the inventor had assured him that the witness had been correct, singling out the call reporter for telling the truth. On that night, he said, the inventor had flown 60 miles in 45 minutes, but amazingly, he understood that there is practically no limit to the speed which can be attained, provided the necessary machinery is made. Following the test flights, the airship was almost perfected, with the only wrinkle needing ironing out by the inventor that of the waving motion noted by many of the witnesses. He described the ship itself as having been 150 feet long, with space to seat 15 people. On the sides, were two large 18-foot canvas wings and attached to the rear of the ship a rudder that was shaped like a bird's tail. When called upon by a colleague, Collins doubled down, stating that he had no alternative 
but to believe implicitly all I have said. Other newspapers quickly descended upon this story, and they attempted to guess the identity of the mystery inventor. A dentist and inventor was soon brought to the public's attention, named Dr. E. H. Benjamin, a resident of Oroville, who had hailed from Maine. The evidence was scant, however, and pivoted on the fact that the dentist had a history of inventing and had paid Collins a visit on several occasions. When the papers caught up with him, Benjamin assured them that his inventions had absolutely nothing to do with air travel and were grounded with the profession of dentistry. The level of unwanted publicity that flocked his way, however, was such that eventually it led him to disappearing from the state overnight, leaving all of his possessions behind. If an attorney was not a man respectable enough to be a trusted witness, the latest sightings brought with it the testimony of the Sacramento Deputy Sheriff, Walter Mallory. Mallory said that he himself had seen a bright white light float above the city. The more I observed it, he said, the more puzzled I became as to what it was. One of the biggest problems with the latest sighting, however, was the large area that would have had to have been covered if all the witnesses were telling the truth. Whilst it was seen once more flying over the centre of Sacramento, it was also seen in the San Francisco Bay Area just 30 minutes later. There were, it seemed, at least two airships in the sky that night. Or, just maybe, some of the stories were not being entirely truthful with their treatment of the mystery ship. But how can that be, when even the mayor of San Francisco himself was giving testimony that his daughter had seen a brilliant light coming in from the sea? This was a logical problem that only compounded itself in the following days, as hundreds, if not thousands, of witness testimonies flew in from across California, making it all but impossible to have been a single object. That, of course, or the entire thing was a fabrication, or a case of mistaken identity. This fact seemed to escape a public, however, that was so excited by the airship's presence night after night that the newspapers saw fit to voice their concern for the readers that they not give themselves airship neck, watching the skies all night in hope of catching a glimpse of the ship. Interestingly, it was the San Francisco Examiner that remained one of the most sceptical newspapers concerning the airship story. The Examiner was a bitter rival to Hearst's The Cool, and it's likely that this played more into the Examiner's narrative rather than the testimonies coming in themselves. As another paper put it concerning the airship being a reality, you pay your money and you take your chance. It really did not matter which side of the argument a newspaper took, as the story itself was enough to spur on circulation numbers. The debate only stoked the appetite of the readers, who continued the discussion in the bars and streets. Whether or not one believed in the airship stories or not, one thing for certain was that there were hoaxers and pranksters operating that were muddying the waters of truth. As the stories and witness testimonies filtered out over the following days, they were accompanied by tales of enterprising individuals who were keen to get one over on the prep population. As the month of November drew to a close, sightings continued to pour in from as far south as Los Angeles, the best witness of which was Captain Frank B. Taylor, who had used a pair of field glasses to observe the ship up close. The light was apparent at considerable distance, perhaps 15 or 20 miles. Through the glass, it appeared pear-shaped or like a soap bubble when suspended from the pipe with the apex tilted a little to the left. About one-fifth of the surface, 
on the left-hand side was dark, and the remainder was very bright and covered at regular intervals with still more brilliant spots. It was about 20 or 25 degrees in the heavens and appeared to be moving in a southwesterly direction. I watched it through the glass for about 10 or 15 minutes. It finally disappeared, apparently going toward the ocean. I do not think it was an airship. It seemed probable that it was a novel affair sent up by someone to impose on people. It might have been a fire balloon, although it hardly had that appearance. I could not see any indication of a car or any other attachment, though if there were anything of the kind, it probably would not have been visible. Probably one of the more sober testimonies of the day, Captain Taylor may not have been so far off the mark with his estimation that it appeared like a fire balloon, as there were already several hoaxes known to have been played by people sending up exactly that in order to fool local inhabitants, though no such prankster appeared to be forthcoming in the event of the Los Angeles sightings. By the 25th of November, stories seemed to leap off a cliff in respect to their credibility when the Examiner published one of the more sensational articles of the day with the headline, Airships Now Fly in Flocks, and suggested that the mysterious inventor had changed his attorney after Collins had talked. His new attorney was apparently a man named William Harrison Hart, the former Attorney General of California, who now suggested that with the cold weather in winter, airship travel would not be profitable. This he related to his inventor client, who took his advice not to seek a patent. Instead, he suggested to his client that the flock of airships that he'd made would be much more profitable if he sold them to Cuba for them to use to bomb Havana. What's more, Hart also confessed to being the attorney to not one, but two inventors of airships. One was now the infamous airship seen throughout California, whilst the other was stationed in New Jersey, where it was built on the East Coast by an entirely different client. Hart was, for what it's worth, a man known for his tall tales. As far as tall tales go, however, at least Harrison's followed roughly the accepted narrative. On the 27th of November, the Evening Mail from out of Stockton, California, went decidedly off-piste when Colonel H.G. Shaw, a former staffer of the Mail's editing staff, supplied the paper with a story that far outstripped even the Examiner for its fantastic claims and exists as one of the earliest recorded examples of alien abduction that closely resembles those repeated today. Wednesday afternoon, I went out to Lodi and Lockford in company with Camille Spooner, a young man recently arrived from Nevada. I went to the places mentioned in quest of material to form an exhibit to represent this county at the Fresno Citrus Fair. We left Lodi on the return trip, I should judge, shortly before six o'clock, and we were jogging along quietly when the horse stopped suddenly and gave a snort of terror. Looking up, we beheld three strange beings. They resembled humans in many respects, but still, they were not like anything I had ever seen. They were nearly, or quite, seven feet high and very slender. We were both somewhat startled, as you may readily imagine, and the first impulse was to drive on. The horse, however, refused to budge, and when we saw that we were being regarded more with an air of curiosity than anything else, we concluded to get out and investigate. I walked up to where the strange-looking persons were and addressed them. I asked where they were from. They seemed not to understand me, but began, well, warbling expresses it better than talking. Their remarks, if such you would call them, were addressed to each other, 
and sounded like a monotonous chant inclined to be guttural. I saw it was no use to attempt a conversation, so I satisfied myself with watching and examining them. They seemed to take great interest in ourselves, the horse and the buggy, and scrutinised everything very carefully. Whilst this bizarre face-off continued, the colonel inspected the beans carefully and he supplied a full description, stating that they had small hands with no nails, but feet twice as long as a human. They apparently used these feet like monkeys and seemed to have more control over their toes than they did their hands, a fact that he found out after he drew near enough that he could stretch out his hand and lift one of them by its elbow, and it attempted to graft onto the ground with its toes. To add to his shock, the colonel also found that lifting them took no effort at all and estimated that they only weighed about an ounce. Their skin, he said, was wrapped in a velvet-like texture that was not hair, nor was it feathers, but it was silken to the touch. Due to their small mouths, the colonel also decided that they were likely never ate nor drank, but instead lived off of gas, and evidenced by a strange contraption carried by both beings, somewhat like a bag with a nozzle that they put in their mouths and inhaled from, making a sound as if produced by a person blowing up a football. After a time, the beings got bored of watching the colonel and his companion, and they attempted to lift him off his feet, but though all three tried, they could not muster the strength. Giving up, they walked back to what the colonel now saw was their airship, 150 feet in length and floating 20 feet off the ground. Once they boarded the ship, it rose up and soon was out of sight. I have a theory, which of course is only a theory, that those we beheld were inhabitants of Mars who have been sent to the Earth for the purpose of securing one of its inhabitants. I feel safe in asserting that the stories being told by certain San Francisco attorneys clumsy fakes and should not be given credence by anyone. It was a story that topped many of the whoppers already published concerning the airship. But was it any more or less likely to be true? 1896 was seven years before the 120 feet 12 second long flight undertaken by the Wright brothers and a full 10 years before sustained flight was widely seen as anything other than the dreams of eccentric inventors. So was the Colonel's story really any more fantastical than all the other stories of airships powering through the night sky. Prior to the 19th century, hot air balloons were the primary target for inventors seeking to crack the puzzle of manned flight. France in particular was a country especially interested in the concept and many of the world's firsts came from the experiments undertaken by the Montgolfier brothers, a pair of wealthy paper manufacturers with a particular interest in ballooning. The elder brother, Joseph, showed the earliest interests in flight when he experimented with parachutes by strapping a makeshift pack to his back and throwing himself off the roof of his house. By 1782, the two were carrying out their very first test flight of a hot air balloon, built from taffeta cloth and thin wood. A year later, they sent a balloon into the air, complete with a sheep, cock and a duck, in an attached basket to the awe of thousands except perhaps the king, who had himself suggested sending up two convicted criminals instead of the animals. As work progressed into the 19th century, the designs slowly shifted from hot air balloons to dirigibles or airships which could be controlled with much more precision than a conventional balloon. France continued to lead the way and by the mid-century airships were being tested but with only limited successes. 
flight was erratic at best, and the ships themselves were extremely fragile, made entirely from lightweight cloth materials with limited use of light woods. In 1884, the French army launched the first fully controlled free-flying ship named La France, a long cigar-shaped ship covering 8 kilometres in 23 minutes. Twelve years later, however, and the technology had largely stalled. Airships were perpetually a technology that lay just on the horizon for the average member of the public. Often the subject of science fiction, an actual functioning airship sat tantalisingly close in one's imagination. As early as January 1896, newspapers across America, including the San Francisco Examiner, were speculating on the use of airships in future warfare. The San Francisco Examiner published a story on the 16th of February with the headline, Nations May Yet Fight in the Air, that spoke of sailing over a city, destroying it with torpedoes. Is the success of the airship probable? Eminent engineers and scientists have for some time conceded that many of the important obstacles in the way of artificial flight have been removed, and it now seems probable that within a few years all the problems with it will be solved, and a machine capable of sustained flight and entirely under control will be an actual fact. This story is not unique, and throughout the year, in the months leading up to the airship sightings of November, readers across the country were being seeded to believe that airship travel was being constantly worked upon and the rollout of a success just around the corner. As tensions with Spain increased, so too did the hyperbole in the papers, and with it, the promise of a swift war quickly decided with the force of flying fortresses dropping dynamite from the air. With the year drawing out to a close, however, the excitement for the Sacramento airships had slowly died out. Though stories were in the local papers almost daily throughout the winter and into spring, most were decidedly tongue-in-cheek jabs at other publications and there were no new sightings. It wasn't until February of 1897 that any substantial new stories would reappear in the press. This time, as the mysterious ship crept its way east across America, exposing itself to a newly enthusiastic audience. It was 10.15pm when Ike Chidsey, an operator for the Missouri Pacific Railroad, called the signalman at the Atchison office. Chidsey had been out on a platform in Falls City, Nebraska. I expect you'll laugh at me, he told the dispatcher, before describing seeing a light in the sky flying at around 60 miles an hour. Chidsey should have had a little more faith in the dispatcher, as his stories were not quite as unusual as it may have felt. A week prior... Sightings of mysterious lights in the sky were being widely reported in Kansas. In the days between the two sightings, speculation had reigned, with the narrative seemingly settling on the assumption that it was the California airship making its way across the country. Second in the running was the much more ominous Ill Omen, though supporters of that idea were seemingly in the minority. On the night of Ike Chidsey's sighting, Reports came in from across the state until 3am, passing from west to east and appeared to be following the line of the railroad. Quickly after, the entire Midwest became swamped with sightings of the airship, with each state from west to east falling like dominoes to the strange light spell. As it travelled over Iowa, Missouri and Illinois, the lights attached to the undercarriage that were most often described 
changed from red and white to green and white, and several people reported seeing great material wings. By the 9th of April, the sightings reached as far east as Michigan, where the ship was spotted flying over Chicago. Once in Chicago, a new theory was very quickly floated by Professor G.W. Hoff of the Dearborn Observatory, who claimed the Chicago sightings were not an airship at all, but rather one of the brightest stars in the constellation of Orion, Alpha Orionis. Though the reporting in Michigan was positively sober in comparison to some of the earlier reports in California, it would be untrue to say that general opinion sided with the professor, and there were several other reports that specifically went out of their way to mention that what the witnesses were seeing was definitely not a star, not least because it was seen amidst a barrage of explosions and flying sparks. As the days passed, the airship actually wound up with a destination, thanks to one testimony from attorney Max Hasmer, the secretary for the Chicago Aeronautical Society, who claimed he knew three of the people aboard the airship and knew that they were headed for Washington, where, upon their arrival, they would register patents for the vehicle. If Kazmar's story did nothing else, it helped push the story to the front page of the Washington newspapers, meaning that even if the ship was nothing more than a mirage, the story itself had successfully travelled from coast to coast. We received word from San Francisco three weeks ago, says Kazmar, that a party had started from there in an airship, and that they would stop in Chicago for the purpose of registration. The end of the trip is to be at Washington, D.C., where the ship will be brought to the earth and given up to inspectors. The car contains three persons, and I know of them. The ship is not of steel, as some speculators in the West have declared, but of paper. There is the customary inflated gas reservoir, but the inventors had discovered the secret of practical propulsion. The only new feature of the propulsion is the fact that the posterior of the propeller is flexible and elastic while the anterior is rigid. The fans have a peculiar twisting motion. President Octave Chanute, with other wealthy men, have furnished the money for the venture. Meanwhile, the scientists were sticking to their star story, going to great lengths to explain why they might appear to be moving whilst remaining perfectly stationary. One of the largest problems they faced, however, was the emergence of not one but two supposed photographs of the airship, recently taken in Chicago by a newspaper dealer named Walter McCann. It was on the morning of Sunday, April 11th, when McCann had got up to sort his newspapers at the crack of dawn. As he sauntered to his store at around 5.30am, he sighted the ship in the sky and ran quickly to collect a camera belonging to his son. Dashing out into the street, McCann captured two photographs of the ship as it sailed overhead. The upper part of the ship apparently consisted of a cigar-shaped silken bag attached to which was a lightly constructed framework. In the centre of this framework, the man was located. A propeller or rudder was attached to the framework, the latter being shaped like the hull of a ship except that it was sharp at both ends. Apparently, the framework was composed of white metal. McCann was still busy printing copies of his photograph which he had shrewdly put on sale from his newspaper store at Rogers Park when the Boston Globe printed their own story that the photographs had all been a hoax. According to the Globe, 
McCann had hung a model of an airship from the telephone cables above the train tracks nearby to his shop and snapped the crudely painted object. McCann had overlooked one small detail in his plan. Among the witnesses during the time the photograph was taken was a man named Bill Hoodless, a devout member of the Salvation Army who, according to the Globe, had positively refused to swear, chew tobacco, take a drink or tell a falsehood. For several days, Bill had kept quiet about the story, but eventually his conscience got the better of him and he told all to the Globe. With all the furore around the airship story, it was no wonder that unscrupulous members of the public would be keen to create hoaxes to use the story for their own personal gain. But it may have been considered a tad off the pale when newspapers themselves began to create hoaxes, which is exactly what happened when a Peoria newspaper sent Chinese lanterns with balloons attached up into the air, simply to fool another local paper, in order that they could write up a petty gotcha story. One of the more famous hoaxes involved a letter that was found tied to a three-foot-long reed with red, white and blue streamers attached on a farm in Astoria, Illinois, addressed to Thomas Edison. The Edison letter hoax was not actually the first story to claim that a letter had been dropped from the airship, but the intended recipient was by far the most famous. Bert Swearingen, the farmer whose land the letter had been dropped upon, discovered the strange missive, dated the 16th of April, and stating the letter had been dropped as it had passed over at 2.30pm on that day. Further instructions, written on the outside of the envelope, asked for the letter to be forwarded to Thomas A. Edison and was signed, Excuse the dirt, just got done oiling, Harris, electrician, airship number three. Bert opened the letter, but was unable to read the contents as the entire thing had been written in a strange cipher code. Reporters were quick to deliver the letter to Edison's lab but the man himself could not read the code either and he promptly declared the whole thing a pure fake whilst ensuring the press that he was not working on any airship. I prefer to devote my time to objects which have some commercial value. At best, airships will be only toys. It was a statement that if nothing else proves that even genius can have some misses from time to time. The letter did ensure one thing though, that the story was now global news and papers across Europe began picking up and reprinting the various rumours that had been flooding east across America from the previous months. As the months ticked by, however, the story faded as quickly as it had come. Throughout the rest of spring, there were intermittent reports on the progress of airship invention in papers across the country and in almost every one, the earlier California airship was often brought up but no more sightings were given any credence, and gradually it fell by the wayside into obscurity. There were, however, two stories that would live on to the 20th century, and unsurprisingly, they are two of the strangest from the entire saga, and paralleled many events that will come to be linked to mysterious lights in the sky still today. On the morning of the 17th of April, a large explosion was seen above a farm in Aurora, Texas. In the days previous, several sightings had been reported in the local papers of the mysterious airship already seen by thousands in the states just north of the state border, and now it seemed Texas lay in the flight path. Simple sightings, like the rest of the country, would soon prove to be far too boring fare for the local residents, however, and reports soon began filing out of an apparent explosion. 
About six o'clock this morning, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of an airship which has been sailing through the country. It was travelling due north and much nearer the earth than ever before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour and gradually, settling toward the earth, it sailed directly over the public square and when it reached the north part of town, collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill and went to pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and water tank and destroying the judge's flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not of this world. Mr. T.J. Weems, an alleged authority on astronomy, was on hand to declare that the body was that of a Martian. When it was searched, several papers were found, thought to be a record of the flight, but it was written in some unknown hieroglyphics, whilst the ship itself was so badly wrecked that its construction was entirely lost upon the witnesses to the crash site, though it was said to have been formed from an unknown metal, somewhat a mixture of aluminium and silver, and it weighed several tonnes. If this story wasn't weird enough yet, the town was said to be holding a funeral for the pilot the following day at noon. All of this, remember, was a full 50 years before the now infamous crash at Roswell. The debris of the craft was said to have been scattered across the ground and much of it collected by local townsfolk, though a small selection was buried in the grave which had been capped with a crudely carved out sandstone block along with the body of the pilot who had since been christened Ned. Any of the debris left was dumped at the bottom of a well, later to be sealed with a concrete slab and an outbuilding built on top. Unlike much of the airship mystery that had taken place over that winter, the story of the Aurora crash was not quite so quick to fade into obscurity. For a time, it certainly did disappear, but it re-emerged in the 1960s when some of the surviving locals were interviewed by Dr. Alan Hynek of ufology fame for an investigation into the crash. Hynek spoke to a man named Oscar Lowry who had been a resident of the town at the time of the crash report. However, Lowry confirmed not only that the weak credentials of Weems, being an authority on astronomy, were vastly overblown, given that he was the town's blacksmith, but also that the Judge Proctor never even had a windmill on his land. Though this claim has been the matter of some strong dispute, and in 2008, a TV show investigating the case claimed that they had found the foundations of the windmill buried deep in the ground. In 1973, a campaign to exhume the burial site was partially underway when the news broke that it had been robbed overnight, removing any metallic pieces which had previously been picked up by a metal detector. The grave robbing put an end to the possibility of exhumation, especially given the fact that no one was quite sure which site was the correct one anyhow. Whether or not the whole story had been a hoax, is still sort of worthy of debate, depending on who you talk to, with proponents citing the grave robbery and the allure of what may have been, and dissenters keen to point out that in 1897, Aurora was a rapidly declining town that had suffered from epidemic and crop failure, and that the story was likely an attempt at reinvigorating the failing economy. Six days after the alleged crash in Aurora, a second incident, taking place in Kansas, occurred that could rival even the fantastic reports published about Ned, when a farmer saw an airship tie up one of his cattle with a rope 
and carry it off the ground, stealing it away, off into the night sky. The witness, named Alexander Hamilton, told the story that he'd gone out at about 10.30pm that night after being awoken by noises coming from his livestock, only to see an airship descending upon his cows. It consisted of a great cigar-shaped portion, possibly 300 feet long, with a carriage underneath. The carriage was made of glass or some other transparent substance, alternating with a narrow strip of some material. It was barely lighted within, and everything was plainly visible. It was occupied by six of the strangest beings I ever saw. They were jabbering together, but we could not understand a word they said. Every part of the vessel which was not transparent was of a dark reddish colour. We stood mute with wonder and fright. Then some noise attracted their attention and they turned a light directly upon us. Immediately on catching sight of us, they turned on some unknown power and a great turbine wheel, about 30 feet in diameter, which was revolving slowly behind the craft, began to buzz and the vessel rose lightly as a bird. When at about 300 feet above us, it seemed to pause and to hover directly above a two-year-old heifer which was bawling and jumping, apparently fast in a slipknot around her neck and going up to the vessel from the heifer tangled in the wire fence. We tried to get it off, but we could not, so we cut the wire loose to see the ship, heifer and all, rise slowly, disappearing in the northwest. The next evening, a neighbouring farmer came across the carcass of the young cow, identified by the brand on its hide, torn to pieces, lying in a field on his farm. The story, as amazing as it sounds, came complete with a swarm affidavit from the house of respectable signees, saying they knew Hamilton to be truthful and to trust that the story was equally true and correct. Unsurprisingly, this story, along with the Aurora crash, outlived the rest of the airship flap from 1896 and 97, going down in history as one of the earliest examples of UFO cattle mutilation. Just like the alleged Aurora crash hoax, however, Hamilton's cow napping was also eventually found out to be a complete fabrication. Hamilton, it turns out, was a devout member of something called a local liars club, a somewhat bizarre form of 19th century entertainment frequented by wealthy gentlemen who would gather in smoking jackets to concoct tall tales, the challenge being who could tell the biggest whopper and get away with it. In the case of the abducted heifer, it appears that Hamilton had achieved the biggest whopper of his life, as his story was widely believed until the late 1960s and is still repeated as fact today. So what exactly was going on during the airship sightings of 1896 and 97? Probably, here more than ever, cultural context is everything. The mystery airship sightings took place at a time when America was deep in the throes of a fetishism for invention and technology. Considering the concept behind some of the century's inventions, communications suddenly being able to be sent without wires to a ship in the middle of the ocean, for example, perhaps understandably, many had seemed no more or less otherworldly and certainly no less life-changing than that of an airship, or even a spaceship. At the same time, the science fiction genre was consistently expanding with tales of the eccentric inventor concocting all manner of mechanical machines that were just out of reach of what could be considered feasible. The timeless dream of soaring through the sky was a particular favourite, ripe for material. It was the age of Jules Verne, 
Edgar Allan Poe and Robert Duncan Milne, all of which had stormingly popular stories based around inventing a machine to allow flight. If the stories of Martians seems out of place, consider that whilst it came later in that year, H.G. Wells published War of the Worlds in 1897. Tensions between America and Spain were also at a tipping point, with future warfare constantly speculated upon and propaganda inserted into otherwise perfectly innocuous stories, a style of publishing that presented only a fraction of the yellow journalism that ruled the day, read by a readership who willingly paid to be duped by Barnum and Company's humbugs. Amongst all of this, the airship sightings exploded across America. The sheer number of sightings is overwhelming, certainly in the tens of thousands of witnesses. However, the sheer number of known hoaxes is also fairly steep. Could the airship fever that spread across the states all just have been a combination of hoax, misinterpretation of the stars, or pure fabrication? Daniel Cohen, who researched the science for his book on the subject, published in 1981, entitled The Great Airship Mystery, came to exactly that conclusion, suggesting that the whole thing had been a collection of lies and errors. Robert Bartholomew and Hilary Evans are somewhat kinder classifying the sightings as a form of mass wish fulfillment in their book, The Encyclopedia of Extraordinary Social Behaviour. Could it be, however, that whilst a great many of the sightings could be discarded from all of the above, a few, particularly early sightings, really were legitimate sightings of something unknown flying through the Californian night sky. With many of the most fantastic stories now firmly debunked and the vast majority of the more simple buried in dusty confines of century-old newspaper archives, it seems unlikely that the truth either way will ever be known. All of those directly involved are long since deceased, and all that is left is a series of stories written largely for entertainment, of part of a personal feud or fabricated for personal gain, which leaves us with a history that is deeply entertaining, but murky beyond all measure. That was the story of the phantom airships of the 19th century in America. Absolutely bonkers stories. Really hilarious to um, research. It's been a fun couple of weeks, I'll tell you that. We could talk a little bit about some of the sightings, some of the sort of key sightings, and some of the sort of other stuff that I found behind them after these short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible. And the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. 
And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really, with options for one, three, and five dollars per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So yeah, it's a really interesting story. I'm really torn as to what to believe about it myself personally. I don't know about what you think. I find Daniel Cohen's suggestion that it was entirely fabricated, the entire thing was false, to be a little bit difficult to swallow, though I can see where he's coming from. But to me, I always feel like there's no smoke without fire, you know. Somewhere along the line, those earlier sightings were potentially true. I think one of the best things that goes in his favour is that the sightings are so different and and so varied like at times the ship had wings and at others it, it didn't have any wings at all and had like a large rotor it's different sizes it's, it's different colors it's different materials sometimes you could see people on board other times they couldn't even see a basket it, it's it's so jumbled that I, I don't really think that any, any of those witnesses accounts are true which leads me to believe that it wasn't necessarily all lies, but perhaps there were some misidentifications. So, like, people have looked into where the stars were in the sky at the right times to see if they matched up with the sightings. And there were cases where um, I think Jupiter was very clear about the time. And I think there was another case where, um, yeah, yeah, there's this star of Orion that this guy was talking about was basically at its peak visibility at the time of the airship sightings. But at least that doesn't or shouldn't explain the first sightings. Because if you look at look up the meteorological data, um, it, it was raining all day um, and cloudy all night. So you wouldn't have been able to see the stars anyway. 
So I think that discounts that. And what else I find interesting with the first sightings, but where they, it, it's interesting and it leads a little bit of credence to it, I believe. But at the same time, once you look into it, it sort of takes away the credence, is that the only ones with any real coherence were the first sightings. And so you could say that maybe they were true and that those people saw something in the sky. Whether or not, you know, I don't think it was probably an airship, whether or not it was a, a meteor or a star. Say it seems unlikely that it was a star at least. Um, but, but whether it was a, it potentially a meteor or, you know, maybe it wasn't a airship that was like being tested. Who knows? It doesn't seem likely. Um, whether or not it was an alien spaceship, I, I honestly, I'm more likely to believe that it was an alien spaceship than an airship at this point. Um, but, you know, what it was they saw, anyway, I, I think it has more coherence than a lot of the other ones. So I wonder if those original sightings were true and they just sort of spawned a bit of a hysteria. But there, there is a problem with that. And that's that almost all of the original sightings, the witnesses that were published in the papers, came from a, a single railway depot where they the, the paper had sent a reporter and he'd interviewed like all the people that worked there and they'd all given their witness reports but obviously they were all in the same railway depot so they either all gave him the story at the same time or they were they, they would have been aware of each other's stories at the very least so that's kind of i think explains where a lot of that coherence can potentially come from because obviously they would have known of each other's stories so that makes it that those initial sightings, they have that little bit of extra kind of veracity, but it's sort of sapped away as well at the same time. So you're still kind of left on the fence with no, no, not quite sure if, if you believe it or not, really. Or, or that's where I find myself. But yeah, uh, in terms of what they saw, I, I, I don't know. I, I find that interesting. I, I think a lot of the sightings could... A lot of the later signs could have been stars and meteors. I tell you what, there was a meteor just over England like a couple of days ago and I saw the videos of it and I would have crapped myself if I'd have seen it. It was a really low... Um, I don't know if you saw the, the... I saw it in the Guardian newspaper if you want to check it out. But there was a, a meteor that came in across England like really low and you could actually see it like burn up in the atmosphere and, the, and stuff. And, it, and it's pretty bright and pretty shocking. If I'd have seen it, it would have been... You know, it's a re- it would really have been a... Um, you know, to me now, with scientific understanding and all the rest that we've got of, the, you know, living in the 21st century, I still would have seen it and been, I wouldn't have thought it was anything other than a meteor, but still would have been like quite wowed by it. You know, it was, a, it was quite an amazing sight. So you can imagine like back in 1896 um, to the layman, like if it was something like a meteor that they saw in the sky, that, that you know, they could, they could have said it was anything really. Like it would have been quite mind blowing. Um, I, I guess. Um, so that kind of plays into it. Like maybe they just saw something like that. Maybe they, a few people did see the stars. I mean, I'm sure we've all sort of seen stars that appear to change colour in the night sky, right? Especially like when they're planets. And then you add all the hoaxes on top of that. I think when you look at the cultural context, I think that although I can't agree 100% with Daniel Cohen, I, I, I agree like 90% with him in a way. Like I think that maybe there were some original sightings. What they saw, I don't know. But I think there were original sightings. Then I think I kind of agree with Daniel Cohen that pretty much everything else was either a hoax, a lie or a mistake. 
I think it's fairly safe to say that it wasn't an airship flying across America. So what you're really left with after that is, was it a UFO then? You know, like a, an, an alien UFO, like was it a craft, you know, another world craft? Um, I, I know, I, you know, I'm pretty open to that idea. I, I, you know, I, I believe that somewhere there, there is other intelligent life. Whether or not they've visited Earth is, is a different question entirely. It fascinates me. It's a subject that always did fascinate me. My problem with it is I've sort of been burned one too many times by the whole ufology sect. And then it started from a young age. So, so I remember... If anyone remembers, a um, long time ago, you had the Gulfstream uh, hoaxes. I read that book when I was a kid because it happened when I was about seven or eight years old, I think. Um, or that's when I read the book. I was about seven or eight years old when I read the book. And I loved this book. I thought it was amazing. But clearly by the end of the book, it started becoming to me like, this isn't true. This can't be true. And especially when you saw the sketches that he did of the alien, it, it all got a little bit wacky, even to me. And I was only, say, seven or eight years old when I read this book. Even to me, I found it a little bit stretching the, the limits of what I could believe. And then I soon found out after that that it was all a hoax. And so I, I kind of have my fingers burned from quite a young age with ufology. So I've always been somewhat sceptical. And I don't think it's helped by the ufologists themselves, who quite often are in it for the money. And I think they're an awful lot of unscrupulous people in ufology who are happy to fabricate and, well, just lie, frankly, to write, you know, churn out 50 books a year, essentially saying the same thing, which is nothing at all. So I, I kind of don't have a lot of faith in ufology, which feeds fairly heavily into my um, sort of scepticism, I guess, on if we've been visited by, you know, aliens. Um, but, you know, in this case, I'm, like I say, I, I'm honestly more willing to believe that this was aliens than it was an airship. That doesn't say a lot because I, you know, I, I, I outright don't believe it was an airship and, and, and I say I'm more willing to believe it was aliens, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what I think happened. I think it was, I'm probably leaning more towards Daniel Cohen. I really enjoyed the two, obviously the two hoax stories. One of them was an obvious hoax, the Liars Club one, obvious hoax. I thought it was hilarious that it was signed by all these like wealthy, well-to-do people who were well-respected in the area. And that gave it a lot of credence Till you realise they were all a member of this liars club. Um, and then that kind of shoots that one out of the water. So the, the, yeah, the whole cattle uh, kind of mutilation hoax is sad that it was a hoax, but that was clearly a hoax. The Aurora crash, that's slightly more interesting. Back when Daniel Cohen wrote his book, he pretty much writes that off as a hoax and offers up a fair bit of evidence as to why he thinks it's a hoax. Um, I've since read that, you know, like since that book's been published, more stuff has been found out about it. Um, do I believe it? Probably not. I still think it's probably a hoax. But it's an interesting story nonetheless. Funnily enough, you, you sort of go back to that quote, you know, you pay your money, you take a chance, right? Like, what do you want to believe? Um, I don't believe it in being airships. I don't know what you think. If you believe it was sort of, if there was anything to it, at all um feel free to get in touch and let me know uh your thoughts on it if, if you'd like you can do so um you can email me contact at darkhistories.com uh you can go to the website darkhistories.com um, and you'll be able to find all the ways that you can contact me like all the social media links like uh, facebook instagram 
um, Twitter and all that, and you can DM me as well if you'd like to do it that way. Um, you, you know, you, you can even phone up and leave a message, or you can join our Discord server, um, have a little chat on there with everyone about your thoughts. Uh, you're more than welcome to do so. Again, you can find links to all of that on darkhistories.com, as well as ways um, you can support if you'd like to do so. Uh, otherwise, that's that, I guess. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, be back in two weeks with a new story. So until then, take care, um, stay healthy and sleep tight. <laughs>